Okay, before we get started, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Anything, anybody have anything we need to pray for? Your test. <laughs> Family. Family. All right. Finance. Family and finance. All right, well, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can come to you with all of our needs and fact of Scripture. Uh, mandates us to bring every need before you. No need is too, is too small or insignificant to be brought before your throne of grace. Father, we pray for these requests for family and finances for students. Uh, uh, this can be a challenge for finances. And it can also be uh, various challenges with family. We pray that you would give them wisdom to deal with the things they need to deal with and that you would provide what needs to be provided. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study, to be here, to be exposed to your word. Father, we pray that you would give these students the ability to remember, to concentrate today, especially on the quiz, that they can remember the things that they they have learned and they've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right, we're in our eighth class, I believe. This is uh, the book of Deuteronomy. This is one of the most important books in the Old Testament lays a foundation for the rest of, rest of the Old Testament. And I pointed out when we went through Genesis that when the Abrahamic covenant was given to, to Abraham, that covenant with Abraham truly becomes the foundation for it. Not only everything else in the Bible, the foundation for a contractual foundation for what's eventually going to occur on the cross, but the Abrahamic covenant gives us a key to interpreting all of history. It helps us to understand the history of Israel, and it helps us to understand all of history, because at the very core of history are the Jews, the land of Israel, and God's promises to Israel. So even today, and yesterday there was another incursion by Israel into Gaza, uh, another set of problems as we watch these things on the news today how do we understand this how do we answer questions like this does Israel today have, have a biblical right to the land what is going on here so we have to master the Old Testament to understand what happens in the New Testament and what goes on beyond that and so much of it goes back to understanding God's promises of blessing and curses that are given, for example, back in Leviticus 26, which we studied a a couple of weeks ago, and in Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 30. So look at your notes, and we'll start with at the beginning. Now, Deuteronomy comes from from the Latin deuteros namas, Greek, rather. Deuteros meaning meaning uh, second, namas meaning law, Deuteros namas. This was the title of the Septuagint. The Hebrew title simply meant words. It was the these are the words of Moses at the beginning, so it's called the Devarim. So our little cartoon reminders: we have uh, somebody being danced on by two tablets of stone, the second law. Just little things to, funny things to try to 
keep this in your head. So if we think of Deuteronomy, the key phrase is second law, memory phrase, second law. So Genesis is blessing, Exodus is exit, Leviticus is, you don't remember Leviticus? Priest and offering. Numbers is? Wandering. Numbers is wandering. Deuteronomy is second law. This just captures the main thing that's going on in the book. Genesis is all about beginnings. Exodus is about the Israelites coming out of, exiting Egypt. Leviticus is about priests and offerings. The first five chapters describe the five different offerings. And then everything else in Leviticus is based on those offerings and their utilization in the ritual of Israel. Numbers is about their the wandering in the desert for 40 years, the failure of Kadesh Barnea, and then, and then uh, the success of the second generation. Now Deuteronomy comes along, and Deuteronomy is addressed to that second generation. So the, let's find our title. <coughs> title Devarim in the Hebrew means words. And we get our English from the word, from the Greek title in the Septuagint's second law. Now some people mistaking, mistakenly think this refers to a repeat of the second law. But it's not a repeat of the second law. This is based on a mistranslation of Deuteronomy 17.18. Let's look at that just a minute. Deuteronomy 17.18 says, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that is the king, so it anticipates, even though there's not a king yet, it's anticipating that there will be a king. So it's always God's plan to establish a king over Israel. The problem was the Jews wanted it done when they wanted it on their terms rather than God's. So he said, so Leviticus 17:18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll. So that phrase, copy of this law, was mistranslated in the Septuagint as second law. He shall write a second law instead of a copy of the law. And that led to the title Deuteronomy as second law. It's not a repeat. It is a reiteration of the law. It is a covenant renewal ceremony. What's our key word for covenant again? Contract. It's contract. So important to understand that because uh, it affects so much in terms of interpretation God enters into a contractual relationship with his creatures and that contract is going to be interpreted in a literal fashion you can't come along and and interpret it allegorically or interpret it as if those events don't actually happen, you can't interpret it symbolically, it's a legal document you can't go in today and interpret your mortgage contract Allegorically, you can't go in and interpret your car loan contract uh, symbolically. Uh, nobody's going to let you get away with that. And so this provides us with a real solid basis for understanding interpretation of the scriptures. This is how the later prophets interpret 
the earlier writings as literal. This is how Jesus interprets the Old Testament as literal. This is how later New Testament writings interpret even earlier New Testament writings. So it's important to understand this as a as a uh, it's a contract the Mosaic law but Deuteronomy is a sermon as we'll see from Moses it's his parting words and it is indeed a renew, covenant renewal ceremony so he is reminding the people of the basic stipulations of the contract and what it means and then they as a people as the second generation are going to renew that contract it's not that it from God's perspective, it's not that God is renewing the contract with them as if it had had gone out or had expired, but that they are being reminded that they are part of this contractual relationship and that those stipulations uh, apply to them. So Deuteronomy is viewed as an expansion and a development of the of the law. We come to the second point, which deals with the date. The date is 1406 B.C. on the plains of Moab. Now let me go back here to uh, a couple of uh, slides back to a map. Here we have a map of the route of the Exodus or one suggested route of the Exodus. And what we see is up here on the southwest side of the Dead Sea is the land of Moab. That's part of modern uh, Jordan today. And there's a ridge of mountains along the west side of the, on the east side of the Dead Sea. But they, they open up when you come up to the northern part there, just north of the Dead Sea. It opens up and flattens out a little bit. And that's the plains of Moab. This is where the Jews came where they encamped prior to crossing the Jordan to go into the land. It is there that Moses goes up on Mount Nebo, and this is where he is going to die. And then we know from other passages that there's a struggle with Satan over his physical remains. But this is the location of where Deuteronomy is given. 1446 was the date of what event? The Exodus. The Exodus event, not necessarily the book of Exodus, because the book of Exodus deals with what happens during the next year on Mount Sinai. So the book of Exodus technically can't be written any earlier than 1445 because all those events have to take place before he could write, write them down. Then they, from Mount Sinai, they eventually travel to Kadesh Barnea, which takes several months. And it's a Kadesh Barnea they fail. So they spend the next 38 years living in the desert, waiting for that generation to die. That's not a pleasant thing. We're just waiting for all you old folks just to die. And then we're going to be able to go into the land. Because you failed. This, you know, this was, was not a pleasant time in the history of Israel. So it's on the plains of Noab that this is written and delivered. We're told in chapter 1, verse 3, that it took place in the last month of the 40th year after the Exodus. The last month of the 40th year after the Exodus. By this time, all the warriors of the 
Exodus generation were dead, except for Caleb and Joshua. That was your extra point question on the quiz. The names of the two spies that were faithful to the Lord. What does Caleb mean? Anybody know? Caleb is Hebrew word for dog. What does Joshua mean? Yeah, yeah, it's the deliverer. It's the same word, Yeshua, for Jesus. Yeshua comes over into Greek as Jesus. Hebrew, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus are the same same name. After the Exodus. Then the third point, the conquest of the Transjordan is complete. The conquest of the Transjordan is complete. That word trans means across the Jordan. Yes. Can we digress and go back to Hennepin? All the warriors and the Israelites and the Israelites and the Exodus generation. Exodus generation. That is, you know, everybody came out of Egypt had to die except for Caleb and Joshua. Now they've already, by this time, they've conquered the Transjordan area. Now there's a couple of terms you need to be familiar with. We'll go back to a slide. Uh, Doctor? Yes. Estimation how many people were there? About 2 million. They died in that 38 year span. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of, a lot of funerals. That's a lot of the, a lot of dead people, yeah. See? The term trans means across. So you're, where, where are you standing if you're talking about across the Jordan? On the other side of the Yeah, you're standing in the land. So you, you, the, the terminology is from the perspective of the land. So Transjordan is the area across the Jordan. The term Cisjordan means the, the area on the east side in the land. Cisjordan on this side of the Jordan. So there's Transjordan and Cisjordan. So those are a couple of new vocabulary words for you. At the time that Deuteronomy is written, Moses is about to die. He is prohibited from entering the land. Moses couldn't enter the land. Aaron couldn't enter the land. Miriam couldn't enter the land. Nobody could enter the land except for Joshua and Caleb. And then the fifth point, it's a time of covenant renewal. A time of covenant renewal. So important to remember that covenant means contract. That helps you think through so many things because God has entered into a contract. He's not going to go back on his word. It is a unilateral covenant, unilateral contract or permanent contract. And then we come to the third issue in, in, in introduction, that's authorship. And this is something that we've studied. It's the same issues in all five books of the Pentateuch. The conservative position is that the author of the Pentateuch, author of Deuteronomy, is Moses, just as the Bible claims. And so I give you a list of numerous verses there within the book of Deuteronomy that affirm that Moses is the one speaking. Moses is the one who is the author. In the first point, we, we have this... Yes? Uh, on, on 2A, you said that it was the 
month? I mean the 12th month? Right? I'd say it's the last month of the 40th year. The last month would be the 12th month. Yes. In the book it says the 11th. Well, hey, look, I never, you know, I'm no good with numbers or counting. And I always make, make very simple mistakes like that. So it came to pass in the 40th year, the 11th month. You're right, the 11th month. So just correct that in your notes. I'll make a correction. Does 1B yeah, that's one being the eleventh month of the fortieth year, which makes sense. It's the eleventh month, and when Moses goes up on the mountain, they're going to mourn for a month, and then they're going to go in. Okay, now when we get down to authorship one B, Jesus affirms that it is Moses in passages such as Matthew nineteen seven and eight, Mark ten three through five. Mark 12, 19, John 5, 46 and 47, Jesus quotes the Old Testament and says, or quotes uh, from Deuteronomy and says, did not Moses say or Moses said? So Jesus is affirming Mosaic authorship. So if Jesus is wrong, see, liberals will come along and they'll say, well, Jesus is just accommodating himself to the traditions or the ignorance of the people. Does, does Jesus accommodate himself to the traditions of the, of the Jews? No, never. 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 So this is just, a, it, again, it demonstrates their anti-supernatural bias, that the Bible can't really claim to be a supernatural book, including prophecies and miracles as it claims, because we're sophisticated 19th century, 20th century intellectuals and we know that miracles like this can't happen. We've never seen them. And so we know that these kinds of things are just the product of more primitive, superstitious minds. That's their reasoning. That's their, that's their mentality. Other New Testament passages uh, also affirm that Moses is the author. For example, we have, I have enlisted for you there, Acts 3.22, Acts 7.37-38 in Stephen's parting message to the Pharisees and Sadducees that are about to stone him. Romans 10.19, 1 Corinthians 9.9, and Hebrews 10.28. Third point, higher criticism, that is the influence of European rationalism coming out of the Enlightenment period in the 17th, 17th and 18th centuries in Europe questioned anything that the Bible claimed. And their basis for questioning this is on four points. First of all, they base it on the rediscovery of the book of the law in the temple during the time of Josiah in the 7th century. Liberal theologians claim that this is a pious fraud. That's a term that they use. A pious fraud means that it's a forged document, but it has sacred significance. So that's where they get the term pious fraud. What they're claiming is that during the time of Josiah, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament history, 
Uh, the temple has fallen into disrepair. The people in the preceding uh, kings, under the preceding kings, have gone into idolatry, worshiping Baal and the Asherah. And now Josiah is going to clean things up. And so the priests go into the temple and they start straightening everything up and they go into the storeroom and rediscover the law. Nobody, that's like saying nobody's had a Bible for a couple of generations. And all of a sudden they go in, they discover the Bible again. And, and they, don't, they don't even know what they're supposed to all, all they've been doing is functioning on hearsay, oral tradition, and, and ritual. They, they don't know what the book says. They don't understand the contractual relationship. And as soon as they discover it and read it, of course, they, there's tremendous repentance, cleansing of the temple, and a restoration of temple worship and the worship of God, and this is a tremendous time of renewal and revival, genuine revival, not what modern Americans think of as revival, which is something that's unique to America. No other countries have anything like what America's call, Americans call revival. That's just basic church history, second semester. Totally, you know, our modern, when I say revival, especially if you're a Baptist, Whatever is in your mind is not what the Bible means by revival. <laughs> Whatever goes on at your church is not what the Bible means by revival. I mean, what, what the Bible means is that they come face to face with the truth and it's changed their life. It's not emotional. It's not, you know, it's not uh, generated by, okay, next week we're going to have a revival. So wait till next week. It's spontaneous. It's just the work of, uh, God the Holy Spirit. So there's a revival. What the liberals claim is the rediscovery of the law was really the original writing of the law. The second uh, basis that they use to reject Mosaic authorship is they go to Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 4, and, and which presupposes a central, uh, central sanctuary. Actually, it's really 12, 1, 1 through 7. It should really be 12, 1 through 7. Verse 4, verse 5, we read, You shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come, there you shall bring your burnt offerings, etc. And this is the law of the central sanctuary, and it presupposes Jerusalem as the location, and so uh, liberals say, well, they didn't conquer Jerusalem until David. This is 1400. David doesn't conquer Jerusalem and defeat the Jebusites for another 400 years. The temple isn't built for another 500 years. So, ah, if this is, was written by Moses, then it was prophetic. Well, we can't have that. That would mean that there's real supernatural activity, divine revelation. So, must have been written after the fact. See, that's the standard modus operandi of, of liberals. Is Daniel couldn't have written Daniel as prophecy in the fifth, in the uh, sixth century uh, B.C. It was really written in the second century B.C. after the rise of Persia and Greece and Rome. It, it, he could not have predicted those things. 
Third reason that they give is that some material such as Moses' death clearly happened after Moses died. So how could Moses have written the last chapter or in chapter 24? Chapter 24 did Chapter 34. Yeah, chapter 34. There's a typo there. Third reason is that some material such as Moses' death, which is Deuteronomy 34, is post-Mosaic. Deuteronomy 34 comes after Moses. But Moses could have written that prophetically, or Joshua could have written that one chapter. But just to say that there's that one short chapter wasn't written by Moses doesn't mean Moses couldn't have written the rest of it. Hmm? No, we're not sure who wrote it. Moses could have written it as prophetic or because he knew what was going to happen or Joshua could have written just that one section. And the fourth reason they reject the book is because it contains predictive prophecy about the dispersion and the regathering of Israel. Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, and 32. These are very important chapters to study in light of Israel's future and in light of what's going on with Israel today because they predict the worldwide dispersion of Israel and then the worldwide regathering of the people to the land. Has that ever happened? No, it has. When would you think that it happened? The return from Babylon? Yeah, but see, that you, you qualified it. I said worldwide return. You said the return from Babylon. Do you hear the difference? See, they didn't return from the whole world. God said, I'm going to scatter you throughout the whole earth, and then I'm going to bring you back from the whole earth. But that's never happened. All you had was a partial return in, in uh, uh, 536. You haven't, you, and it was from Babylon. It wasn't from Egypt. You still had an Egyptian community there up through the time of Christ. It wasn't from Greece. It wasn't from Turkey. So that hasn't happened yet. And Deuteron- the, the, the reference in Deuteronomy is to a worldwide return in obedience to God, in regeneration, and that hasn't happened. So that's yet future. So if if, if that and that indicates that Israel has a future, for God, it must have a future. God is God's word is not correct. Okay, then a few words about structure. The next point, four A. Predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy. The fourth reason is because the book contains predictive prophecy about the dispersion and regathering of Israel. You know the structure. When Moses structures his his reiteration of the law, he does so according to the standard contractual form of his era. If you were to, let's say, go dig around in your parents' papers and discover a real estate contract, you want to know, gosh, where is this? When was this? Maybe there's no date on it. You could look at different ways in which real estate contracts have been written down through the last 
in Texas 150 years, 160 years, and you could figure out by comparing the form and the structure and the way that contract was written with different contracts from those eras, and you could pinpoint within a year or two probably of when that contract was written just by comparing the form. The way contracts were written in the 60s isn't the same way they're written today. Okay? So there's a, this is called literary form. And the literary form of this contract was referred to as a suzerain-vassal treaty. A suzerain-vassal treaty. Now the term suzerain refers to a sovereign or a king or ruler of some kind or a state having some control of another state that is internally autonomous but they still have policy that's dictated by another country. Can you give any examples today of uh, something like this? England and the Hmm? What? Okay, I said a suzerain is a sovereign or a state that has some control over another state or country that is internally autonomous, but they're basically everything they do is dictated by a superior power. The Bahamas, yeah. Uh, something else. Costa Rica, no. No. But it would it would be under the British Empire. You would have had uh, some colonies were different because a colony is not internally autonomous. But think about the think about the Soviet Union. Cuba. Yeah, the Soviet Union to Cuba. Soviet Union to Poland, to Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, dictated policy to those countries, to North Korea. When the Soviet Union broke up, then you got a problem. So that, that was, that's the idea of a suzerain, is a king who conquered a territory or an, an area, and then they still had a measure of autonomy, but they weren't independent of that king anymore. They had to pretty much do what he said to do, and what do you think they had that would stipulate those responsibilities? A contract. Another word we would use is a treaty. That's what a treaty is. It's a contract. It's a form of a contract. And so you, you, this is sometimes referred to as the suzerain-vassal treaty. A vassal is a historical holder of land by a feudal tenure on conditions of homage and allegiance, or it refers to a person or country in a subordinate position to another. And that's what we're looking at there is that second meaning. It's a person or country in a subordinate position to another. So in, in a real sense, when Israel comes back into the land after five in 536, they are still, the, the governor of Judah is appointed by the Persian emperor, and serves at the pleasure of the Persian emperor. And if the Persian emperor wants to get rid of him and appoint somebody else, he will. And so Israel, or Judah, still functioned as a vassal nation to the Babylonian Empire at that time. Now, we're talking about a period of time much earlier in history, in the middle of the second millennium B.C., 1400 B.C., and we have examples of these kinds of treaties or contracts from the Hittite Empire that was in existence at, at this same period of time. And so we can compare 
and there have been scholars and archaeologists who have done a tremendous amount of work on this, and this is the structure of Deuteronomy. And in your second point there, I give you the basic parts of the treaty. This is how they would lay this out as, as the great king. Sometimes it's called the Treaty of the Great King. Meredith Klein wrote a book by that name discussing all of this. The Treaty of the Great King. The king dictates terms to the lesser power that uh, you are now under our control. If you do what you're supposed to do and protect our borders and, and maintain good trade relations, etc., then I will reward you by doing this, 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 and this. And if you don't, then I'm going to come in and I'm going to do, I'm going to punish you by taking these kinds of negative punitive actions. Okay? So the treaty would have, first of all, a preamble introducing the, the major players. Then it would be followed by a historical prologue. In the historical prologue, there would be a, a reiteration of all the things that the king had done on behalf of the vassal of the history of their relationship, what had gone on in the past. Then there would be the stipulations of the treaty, just general principles and then more specific stipulations. Then there would be witnesses that would be invoked. And then there would be a list of the blessings and the list of the curses. In a, in a general sense, in a much more general sense, all the Pentateuch is laid out this way. You have a preamble in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. So I'm in Genesis 1 through 3, the first three chapters of Genesis, introduces the players, God and man. And then there is a history that starts off with, I mean, some would even say the first 11 chapters would be that preamble, the introduction. Then the historical prologue, God calling out Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That gives an introduction to the history of God's relationship with Israel. Then you come to Mount Sinai and you have the Mosaic Covenant. So you have general and specific stipulations there. And then there's call of divine witnesses and then blessing and curses, which are listed in Deuteronomy. And then Numbers, excuse me, uh, Deuteronomy reiterates all of that. So that gives you a general outline. And that's the outline that I follow when we go through the book itself. Now, if you look at your chart, This is a chart that comes out of your uh, Bible knowledge commentary. Your Bible knowledge. Anybody have that Bible knowledge commentary with them? Hmm? I just want to. I just want to do something here. I I read. I read what purported to be a a fairly. uh, I wasn't scholarly, but it was supposed to be a well-known, well-documented paper the other day and with a footnote in it and I've seen this so much I thought you know I guess it's just because people aren't taught anymore when you look at this book on the on the spine here it says at the top Walbert and Zook okay now when you have a book on the cover of the book or on the spine it will list either the author's that would mean that they wrote everything in there. Or the editors. The editors would be the general editors who compiled the material, but different authors or contributors uh, provided that material. Then you have the title of the book. In this case, it's the Bible Knowledge Commentary, Old Testament, and then the publisher, Cook, down at the bottom. 
Now, if, you, if you're going to write a footnote for, for a research paper, you would turn to the uh, title page. And the title page says, The Bible Knowledge Commentary, Editors John Walbert and Roy Zuck. That means that when you open this book and you quote from it, you do not say, John Walbert writes. He didn't write it. He's an editor. You don't say Roy Zook wrote. He didn't write it. He's an editor. Okay, what you do is you turn to, for example, we're studying Deuteronomy, and you would turn to the very first uh, page of the Deuteronomy commentary, and you would see the author of the Deuteronomy commentary listed there as Jack Deere. Jack was a Hebrew professor at Dallas Seminary back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. And so you would say, uh, Jack Deere writes. And then when you put it in the footnote, there's a proper footnote form where you list the authors. Uh, it would be uh, Walverd, John, and Roy Zuck, comma, E.D. period. And, that, and then you would write, then... Um, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and that's in italics. And then you would put the commentary section, Deuteronomy Quotes, by Jack S. Deere. That's how you write that. And there's forms that you look up in Turabian or some of the other books to do that. But uh, I just I see that with this particular commentary over and over again, that people pull it off the shelf, open it up and say, Walbert says, and it kind of... It irritates me after a while that people aren't trained to uh, identify the difference between editors, editors and authors. So, especially on a commentary like that. All right. Uh, the reason that irritated me the other day was I read a quote and they said John Walbert said, and they quoted from a part of the commentary that Walbert didn't write. I knew Walbert didn't agree with it. <laughs> so that's the problem. You know, there, there's difference, and I knew that wasn't his interpretation of that particular passage. So it just sort of really stuck in my head at the time. I went, oh, gee, I just wish people had learned how to read and write. And I guess that's a problem living in a world where people don't get educated in junior high and high school anymore. And our college. Okay. End of my complaint. If you look at the chart there, that's from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, Old Testament, page 137. And somebody check that right now. Just may, I, I'm not sure that that's still the same because they changed the cover. They changed the uh, structure a little bit since uh, the copy I have uh, on the um, in, in my bookcase. 137. Right there? Okay. In the first column on the left, it gives us a listing of the parts in the Near Eastern Suzerainty Treaties, similar to what I've given you on the previous page. Then it gives you the parallel to that on the Mount Sinai Covenant, as it's specified in Exodus chapter 20 in Leviticus. And then as it's given in the Transjordan, that is, Deuteronomy, and then as it's given in Canaan, 
in Joshua. Joshua 24 is another covenant renewal ceremony with the same people now once they're in the land. And so you see that this, this helps us understand what is going on here. It shows us that this is indeed a contract. Now just to add a little, little icing on this cake, there were two types of, of uh, treaties that were frequently given in the, in the uh, Old Testament. For example, there would be a Susan Vassar Treaty, which is somewhat conditional. I mean, if you obey me, I'll give you these blessings. If you don't obey me, I'll give you those, uh, these curses. And then if a vassal was particularly obedient and faithful, then the king would give him a special grant. And this was called a royal grant. And a royal grant was an outright gift that was unconditional. And Old Testament scholars and ancient Near Eastern scholars have identified the structure of the, of the Abrahamic covenant as a royal grant type of covenant, meaning it has a permanency that a suzerain vassal treaty does not have. So these kinds of things are important to help us understand because you interpret the Bible in terms of the time in which it was written. So this is how the people who heard it would have understood uh, these things. Okay, then let's see, we go on to our next point, 5A, occasion. The occasion for this is Moses' impending death. It's his final sermon. It's his parting words, his last shot to the Israelites before they entered the land. And that brings us to the sixth point in the introduction, the key concepts. Now this is important. I want to talk about key concepts, then we'll talk about key people, and a couple of other points before we wrap up. A couple of key concepts that we find here. Three key, these are key words. Key words within the text itself. Words that are used several different Times. First we have the word love. The word love. There are two different words for love in Hebrew. There's the word ahav, which is used 22 times in the book of Deuteronomy, which emphasizes God's affection for his people. Isaiah 43.4. Three times this is related in the text to keeping my commandments. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Verse 10 we read, uh, that God shows mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9 we read, Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then Deuteronomy 11.11. 11. Let the land which you... Uh, I've got a wrong verse there. 11.1. 1. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Does that remind you of anything in the New Testament? In John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He reiterates that several times. It's reiterated in 1 John as well. So how do you know if you love God? How do you know if you're, yeah, you're faithful to God. 
You're obedient to Him. How do you know if you... So, you know, and the reason I make this point is we live in a world today that has so diluted and distorted the concept of love that love is feeling, it's stimulation, it's enthusiasm, it's excitement, it's, it's warmth, it's all, sentiment, it's all these things. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible never portrays love in those ways. Love is faithfulness to a contract. When you stand up and you get married and you face your husband or your wife and you say, I will love you forever, do you want them to be saying, I'm going to feel like this about you forever? Or do you want them to be saying, I'm going to be faithful to this contract forever? Which do you want? Faithful to the contract. Yeah, be faithful to the contract. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, there are, there are times folks go through difficulty and they don't feel so hot about one another. Yeah. And, and, and there, that, that warmth and that sentiment may not always be there. And, and when you're, I used to do this little skit at church where I would get a couple of people up there and they would read their vows to one another and then, you know, somebody else would be standing behind them and, and interpret them. You, we've seen skits like that on TV where somebody says, I love you. And then the other person says, yeah, you make me feel real good. <laughs> and uh, I want to spend my life with you forever. Yeah, and I want to give you the opportunity to make me feel good like this all the time. And see, this is this is what happens so often in in wedding vows. Is is uh, and I've often thought that when I stand up in front of people, I say for uh, for worse and health and sickness and prosperity and adversity for richer for poorer. See, all you ever hear is the first part of those couplets. You know, richer, health, happiness, all those things. You don't hear the difficulty. My mother had polio five years after my parents were married. And one month, and well, three weeks before I was born, and she was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. For the next... 40 years, for 40 years of marriage, my dad had to get her, pick her up and get her out of the wheelchair and put her into the wheelchair and help her get into the car and help her get out of the car, put her in the shower, get her out of the shower. And that's faithfulness to a contract because that wasn't what was going through their minds when they stood up before the pastor and made their marriage vows that their life was going to be like that. Today, in 95% of the marriages where that happened, the husband or the wife would be gone. You know, we don't have the moral fiber because we don't have the Word of God in our culture anymore to stand up to that. And that's the point that God's making here is that love is faithfulness to a contract. The other words that's used for, for love is the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed is one of those words that scholars debate exactly what it means because it's really a loaded word. It's used a lot in the Psalms. And it has the idea of faithful, loyal, unbending, unswerving love. Uh, it, is, it is loyal love. It's faithful love. It is translated uh, God's steadfast love. It is faithful love. You just... You can't just translate it with love because people don't pick up the, the main strength of that word is 
loyalty and faithfulness and dependability and steadfastness that that God is always the same. So uh, that's used, that word is used three times. It's a word that is often described as God's covenant love, His faithfulness to His covenant. So that's the first key word. In fact, the word love is used so many times in Deuteronomy. I've come to the point where I'm talking about Deuteronomy as the Old Testament book of love. We don't think of it that way. But all of a sudden you start figuring out which words are used more than the other words and you see love is used a whole lot more than most words in the book. And that tells you something about its emphasis. This is what God is saying. This is what my love for you looks like and this is what your love for me is going to look like. It's not dependent on how you feel on Sunday morning when you're singing songs. It's not how you feel when you hear the Word of God. It's not that, and I, I've heard that all my life. People come, Pastor, I just felt so close to God this morning. I said, You know, I, what I'm tempted to say is quit worshiping the idol of your emotions. Because you have generated a concept of God or whatever is on Sunday morning, and when that clicks, you think you worshiped. But that's a totally subjective evaluation criterion for what worship is. But worship in the Bible is objective. It has to do with doing the right thing in the right relationship with God and being obedient and faithful to what He's revealed in His Word. That doesn't always feel good. Just like being faithful in marriage doesn't always feel good. But you do the right thing because it's the right thing. Okay, the second... I keep concept that you hear in the book is the Hebrew word shema, meaning to hear or to listen. And the concept isn't just having your ears vibrated. It is listening with a positive response. Like you tell your teenage boy, now didn't you listen to me? And you don't want him to say, yeah, I heard the words. No, no. What you're saying is, didn't you didn't you hear what I said? Realize you had to do what I said. You know, there's a there's a sense of didn't you know you had to be obedient to me? So the idea of hearing or listening has that concept of, of listening with the intent of obedience. That's the same thing we have with James. Don't be hearers of the word only, but appliers of the word. That's what that sense of doer is. It's someone who applies what he hears. You know. Pray without ceasing doesn't mean you wake up and start praying in four days. You're not doing, you're not really hearing the word. Okay, and then the next word that's used is the word, it's a similar word, it's shamar, and it means uh, keep guard, observe, or take heed. Do you have the Hebrew written in there in your notes? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, it's wrong. Scratch it out. The reason I'm saying that is because my printer. No, the the, the, the no the the shamar is right. The Hebrew letters are wrong. The letters are wrong. Yeah, well, the English is right. It, because I I had to send this to my church computer and print it at church. It didn't have the Hebrew font on that computer, so it reversed the letters. Hebrew is written from right to left, and what it did was it reversed those letters. Um, no, the take the, the Hebrew letters. Those squiggly lines. The, 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 what you can't read is what's wrong. Yeah, for take heed and and for and for uh, hear, listen, and obey. Both of those are wrong. 
Ms. Wright, I'm lying through. I just, I just realized that, that I don't have the Hebrew font down there on that computer, so it, it, it uh, printed it in reverse order. The concept of keep, guard, observe, or give heed is used seven, uh, 69 times in Deuteronomy, which tells you the emphasis here is on obeying the law. So you take love, hear, and keep. That tells you what this is all about, gives you an idea of what the message here is. This is what you must do if you're going to experience the blessing. Under 7a, I list the key people. Uh, the key people that are uh, mentioned in the book Sihon. Sihon is the king of the Amorites who ruled in Heshbon, which is about 14 miles, let me back up to a map here, which is about 14 miles east of the north end of the Dead Sea. Here is Heshbon right here. So this is uh, Sihon, king of the Amorites in that area. Then you have Og, the king of Bashan. Uh, king Og, the king of Bashan. Bashan is up to the north. And because of the threat of the Jews coming up on the, on the east side of Moab and Edom, uh, see the... Uh, the Bashanites and the Ammonites are um, threatened by them, and so Og heads south. Og and Sihon head south to try to defeat the Jews. The key place name is Kadesh Barnea, which is the site of their major failure. Then you have Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. Different places sometimes have a couple of different names, so know that. If I ask you what is Mount Horeb, you're going to say it's Mount Sinai. The term Transjordan is the area across the Jordan. Then you have a Hebrew word that's used, and this is a very important word in Judaism. And this is the Shema. And you'll see this verse referred to many times as simply as simply the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The first word, hear, that's the Hebrew word Shema. Listen. Listen up. Shema. Now there's another important thing about this verse that... Uh, People will go to and they say, well, see, the Jews believed in monotheism and they didn't believe in a plurality in the Godhead. See, it says the Lord is one. Now, the word, there's a couple of different words that you have in Hebrew. This isn't in your notes. You can write this down. There's a couple of different ways in, in, in Hebrew that you can express the concept of oneness. You have the word echad. And you have the word Yahid. And basically go back to the same root, but Echad is the word that we have here in Deuteronomy 6.4, and it has the idea of unity, unity with multiplicity. And Yahid has the idea of singularity. 
Let me illustrate the difference. Genesis chapter 2, verse 27 says that the two became one, one. flesh. So you have a unity with multiplicity. That's this first word, echad. So when you look at Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says Yahweh is one. Yahweh, it is, doesn't exclude the concept of a plurality in the Godhead or the doctrine of the Trinity. So, so that, that would be on uh, so that's the word that you have in Deuteronomy 6.4 is a word that emphasizes unity. And singularity? Uh, Yahid, you'd find that in other passages. Yeah. What's interesting is that uh, I've been reading a uh, doctoral dissertation by a guy up at uh, Lancaster Bible College and he has demonstrated that it is not until the uh, later rabbinical period up into the, in the, I mean, or the early Middle Ages, the 7th, 8th century, that, that the Jews have to come down on a solid singularity view of God because of, the, because of Christianity. That up until then... In the Old Testament period and even in, in, in the New Testament, and he demonstrates this from various uh, rabbinical writings, they clearly understood a plurality. And you see this in various Old Testament passages where you have passages like uh, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, or the Lord spoke and sent his spirit. I mean, you have two personalities uh, there. So it's clearly different places in the Old Testament indicate a plurality of personality in terms of the Trinity. Okay, that's the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Then you have Moab. Go back to our, our uh, map. Moab is a descendant of who? Lot and his daughters, remember? Moab, so Moab, they're cousins. Then you have the Jordan River, which is up in the north. And the headwaters of the Jordan are up here, just south of the, this blue line here is the Lebanon border. And just south of the Lebanon border, just inside from modern Syria now, off the Golan Heights, are the headwaters of the Jordan River. And it flows down to the south. Then you have also mentioned Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are located here near Shechem, near Shechem, and in Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and we'll see this in Joshua, the Jews go in, they split up 12 tribes on each, I mean six tribes on each mountain, six on Ebal, six on Gerizim, and they read antiphonally. You know what antiphonal reading is? Responsive reading. Y'all do responsive reading in church? Yes. Okay, it's responsive reading. And one side reads the, now it, if you're, it's like people did it until about 30 years ago. Everybody did responsive readings until about 30 years ago. Of course, you know, modern worship is too arrogant to do anything like, you know, the previous 1900 years of Christianity did it. You know, they want to reinvent the wheel. Uh, 
But they, they got up there and they read the blessings and the curses antiphonally, responsively, so that there's this echo there. And, and they go through this uh, uh, renewal ceremony. That happens in Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. So Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, they're near Shechem. Shechem. S-H-I-T-I-M? No, Shechem. S-H-E-C-H-E-M. Inside the land. Oh, okay. Check. And they renew what? They renew the covenant. The covenant. Yeah. Okay, the eighth point is simply a summary of the book that this is a covenant that God that God had made the covenant with Israel Mount Horeb, and it's restated by Moses to the second generation in Moab across from Beth Peor to remind them of God's historic faithfulness to the covenant and the legal stipulations and obligations placed upon the nation that they may enjoy blessing in the land rather than divine cursing and discipline for disobedience. But at the end he says, if you're going to disobey God, he's going to take you out of the land. And there's that prophecy. The importance, the ninth point, the importance, this is the last part of our intro, the importance of Deuteronomy. Three observations. First of all, when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy to handle each of those temptations. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy to handle each of those temptations. Second point, Jesus answered the question regarding the greatest of the commandments in Matthew 22, 37-39, by quoting from Deuteronomy. And then uh, Deuteronomy is quoted, that should be, Deuteronomy is quoted numerous times in the New Testament, not the LXX. The LXX is just a translation of the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy is quoted numerous times in the New Testament. All right. Well, that brings us to page, whatever it is, five, and the exposition of Deuteronomy. So this is a good place to take a break. Any questions so far? Hmm? Lot. Remember Lot's daughters getting drunk. They each have commit incest with him, and he each gets pregnant. Moab from one and Ammon from the other. So they're, they're cousins... They're cousins to the Jews, so that's why God says don't invade their land. You know, they don't want you to go through the land, go around. They are not there. I have given them their land. 